broadly speaking. And so our thoughts give us leverage to some extent, to a large extent, over our emotions. And once we realise that, and the thing is that most people don't realise this, the majority of people assume that their emotions are quite separate from their thoughts. They don't realise how closely connected they are. Once we do realise that, it opens a toolbox, it opens a magical toolbox. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Donald is a writer, cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and trainer. He specializes in teaching evidence-based psychological skills. He's also known as an expert on the relationship between modern psychotherapy and, and more specifically, cognitive behavioral therapy and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. So he is, is an expert in, in kind of tying those two together, which I find fascinating. He was born in Scotland and now resides uh, a couple places around the world. Uh, right now he is in Canada. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as we talk about not only cognitive behavioral therapy, but also a little bit of uh, Stoic philosophy, uh, among other things. Enjoy the show. Donald, welcome to The Forge. I'm thrilled to have you join us today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. Good, me too. Uh, where, Where are you calling in from, Donald? I'm in Windsor in Ontario, so just across the river from Detroit. Okay, okay. And and that is your place of residence, if I'm correct, if I know, it, right? Kind of, temporarily. Uh, I'm actually going to Scotland in a week's time, and then I'm probably going to Greece. I kind of live part-time in Greece, so move between Canada and Greece. Where's your favorite place to live? That's a mm, tricky question. Oh, huh? gosh. Now I'm going to get into trouble. <laughs> like, um, my favorite, I, to, to be honest, my favorite place to live is Athens. Um, so, I, you know, I'm always kind of keen to, to go there. Um, I've been traveling there a lot over the past three or four years, and um, I have permanent residence status now in Greece. Wow. And uh, I've got a nonprofit that I've set up in Greece as well. So, in the future, I'm probably going to be spending a lot more time in Greece. And that, that's got to be fascinating. I've never been there, but it's on my list. And and somebody like you that studies, you know, ancient philosophy, that's got to be. I mean, you're at the heart of it, right? You're you're at the seat of a lot of the the stuff that you study was was happening right there. So I I can only imagine yeah. that is that's a pretty interesting experience. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Like if you're into something, there's a lot of people. A lot of classicists never go to Athens. Weirdly. Um, one of my friends wrote, uh, was writing about this recently, actually. And for a long time, I kind of didn't think it was necessary for me to go there. And then I went and I, I guess I fell in love with the place. And so, yeah, I do get a lot of inspiration from being able to go there and walk out. You know, I'm doing work at the moment on Plato's Academy, and Academia Platanos, which is uh, a park where Plato's Academy used to be located. And Plato was buried there. Like, no one ever tells you that. Like, wow. But uh, when you're walking in the park, I like to imagine that Plato was walking right, we're walking in his footsteps, and he was talking about philosophy, and Socrates was walking there at one point, 
And as we walk in the park, we're walking on the ground where Plato's bones are probably, where his remains are still under the ground there somewhere probably. So that it does give you a kind of feeling of being more connected. I don't think you have to do that to be able to appreciate philosophy, but it brings it a bit more to life. Yeah, I would love to go there and and maybe do, you know, just study while you were there. I think that would be mm-hmm. a, a great kind of connection. So, I mean, really, that's, uh, you know, I, I did the intro uh, before we started here about about your background, but... You know, a lot of it is in in Stoic philosophy, but also what I what I love about you is you take a little bit different approach. Maybe not a different approach, but but you bring something else to the table, and that is you know modern psychotherapy and, and more specifically cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and anybody that's watching on on YouTube, I'm going to hold up one of Don's books, um, the philosophy of cognitive behavioral therapy, and um, I want to. I teach at the University of Colorado, and I want to build a course around this. I would love to mm-hmm. take this as my textbook and create a course around leadership and and the philosophy of leadership, with obviously a, a strong slant toward Stoic philosophy. So, tell us a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy, Don. Let's start there because I think some of the listeners are going to not really be sure what that is. Do you know? Let's start with what the word means. Like with real basics, so cognitive means to do with thinking, basically means thoughts and beliefs, broadly speaking. And we call it cognitive behavioral therapy because it deals with your voluntary thoughts and actions as a way of changing your emotions. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a therapy that aims at changing emotions by changing what's what we have leverage over, the way we think and the way that we behave. And cognitive, the reason, I guess, to cut to the chase as well, um, the reason that that book is about CBT and stoicism is that cognitive therapy kind of evolved in the mid-1950s originally, and then it didn't really become really mainstream until about the the, the 1980s, mid-late 1980s. And uh, the pioneers of cognitive therapy were inspired by stoic philosophy, why that's where they got the idea from. It's actually an interesting story. Albert Ellis is a New York psychotherapist. And like a lot of people in the 50s, he was kind of mainly psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, sort of broadly influenced by Freud's followers. Um, but he became disillusioned with it. And he decided it just wasn't really working out for him. And Ellis did something that I always admire. He kind of tore everything up and decided to start again completely from scratch. Um, so he thought there's no use trying to kind of like fix this model. I need to just start from scratch. You know, what would be a more sensible way of doing psychotherapy? And he remembered reading Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus when he was a teenager. Uh, he'd read the Stoics. And so he kind of developed uh, an approach which was originally called rational emotive therapy or rational therapy. Um, we now call it rational emotive behavior therapy or REBT. And it was the first form of what we now call CBT or the main precursor of CBT. And it's based on what we call the cognitive model of emotion. Okay, let's get right to the very core of what CBT is. So the way I like to explain this is if a, ther- if a client comes into therapy, every client that comes into therapy, sits down in the chair in the consulting room, and then they'll tell you what's wrong with them, right? Presenting problem. So they'll be anxious or depressed usually, maybe have some anger, uh, maybe some problems or habits. And then they'll go on and talk about the impact that that has on them. 
So it's destroying their relationships, affecting their sleep, it's giving them stomach ulcers or affecting their health. It's making it difficult for them to study or to perform well at work. It's been going on for years. They've tried everything and nothing works. Like, and so, you know, after having explained all this stuff, which is really useful information for the psychotherapist doing their assessment, there's something else that's going on. Like the client has given them a long list of motivation uh, for change. They've listed all the reasons why they should probably do something to get out of this hole that they're in. This is all terrible stuff. It sounds awful. Like, and uh, my depression is just destroying my relationships. You know, it's damaged my health. You know, I can't go on like this anymore. But then usually the client reaches a point, having given this big list of reasons, where they express what we call stuckness. So they say, I know this is awful and I know that I really desperately need to change it, but I can't help it. It's just the way that I feel. And that's an expression of stuckness. And Ellis used to lean forward at that point and smile and say, yes, but it's not just how you feel, is it? It's also how you think. And that, my friend, is the beating heart of cognitive therapy. It's the cognitive model of emotion, like the research-based model, like that holds that emotions aren't separate from thoughts, but emotions are based upon thoughts to a large extent and that when our thoughts change our emotions typically change albeit sometimes after a delay and there might be other factors but broadly speaking and so our thoughts give us leverage to some extent to a large extent over our emotions and once we realize that and the thing is that most people don't realize this the majority of people assume that their emotions are quite separate from their thoughts they don't realize how closely connected they are once we do realize that it opens a toolbox, it opens a magical toolbox, which we sometimes call the armamentarium of cognitive therapy techniques. Because unlike feelings as normally understood, thoughts have propositional content. And by that, I mean they're true or false. And that means that we can examine the evidence for them. It means that we can question contradictions or logical fallacies in them. Um, means we can look at how true or rational or evidence-based or helpful or unhelpful certain styles of thinking are, what alternative ways of thinking might be. So there's many, many angles that we can now adopt to change the thinking and thereby to change our emotions. And the Stoics knew this. This is the cornerstone of Stoicism in a way, or certainly of Stoic psychology and psychotherapy. And so Ellis, this is a research-based model um, and the research is nuanced and complicated and technical. And Ellis thought, how can I explain this to clients? Every psychotherapist uh, is also, in a sense, a translator. Um, we have to study quite jargon-laden, surprisingly technical research studies if we want to stay up to date. But then we have to sit down in front of like a 15-year-old kid or you know, an elderly lady, or a bus driver, or a bricklayer, or the CEO of a big company, or you know, whoever, and explain what's going on based on this complicated research using complex statistics and stuff. But we have to explain it in, in plain English. And the way that Ellis did that was he just taught most of his clients, all of his clients, and all of his students, a quote from Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher. And I would say it's the most famous quote from Stoicism. And it's from the Enchiridion, or Handbook of Epictetus. It's passage number five. And it says, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. 
And that, in a nutshell, is the cognitive. It's a simplified version of the cognitive model of emotion. And once someone really understands that, and it takes a bit of work to, to properly assimilate that viewpoint, then they've opened the door to change. And that's when cognitive therapy can really start working. Oh, and this is a lot of what you said. That's, that's why I'm excited about this. It's, it's something that, that is, I don't know, for me personally, I can just kind of, I can see it and I can, I can understand it and it's not complicated. Um, l- let me go back to a couple of things you said, Donald. So are you telling me that my thoughts are not true? Well, probably most of our thoughts aren't true, right? <laughs> but especially, especially if we get them from YouTube, and uh, and the and the TV and, and newspapers and whatnot. Um, so yeah, there's a if you. It's funny actually. It's more humbling if you look at history. Like if you think about a lot of the things that people believed, you know, a hundred sure, years ago sure. or two hundred or three hundred. In retrospect, it's easy to go. Those guys believe some crazy stuff. Like, well, people are going to look at us a hundred years from now. I hate to break it to you, gentle, you know, listener or, or viewer, but people are going to look back at our society and think we believed a lot of crazy and not just false things, but logically contradictory, like absurd, like incoherent things that we somehow managed to to believe. You know, people often believe things that that yeah. are aren't even compatible beliefs that aren't even compatible with one another. Um. So, yeah, we believe a lot of stuff that, that's not true. I'll give you an example with regard to anxiety. So my specialism is in treating anxiety. And so we could dig a little bit deeper and we could say, look, different emotions have a different cognitive structure. So anxiety, this is a broad generalization. It doesn't cover necessarily every instance. But broadly speaking, uh, we could say that anxiety is a belief that something catastrophic is about to happen and that I won't be able to cope with it. Um, and that's a particular, it used to be called the transactional model of stress that that's based on. That's Beck's, Aaron T. Beck is the other pioneer of cognitive therapy. That's his basically a simplified version of his model, cognitive model of anxiety. The Stoics said almost exactly the same thing 2,300 years ago, like, if they said, well, what sort of thoughts cause what sort of emotions then? Well, those are the kind of thoughts, very simply. It's kind of common sense model in a way. Now, an example of that would be people with panic disorder, which is a, a type of anxiety disorder where you essentially have a very acute, very intense uh, feeling of anxiety that peaks very rapidly and feels overwhelming. And so it's a specific type of anxiety. Now, Freud and other psychoanalytic therapists used to think that panic disorder was virtually untreatable. They didn't have much success dealing with it. And in the mid-1980s, a a cognitive therapist uh, called David Clark uh, developed a treatment protocol for an evidence-based, research-based treatment protocol that took the treatment from zero to hero. It went from people thinking it was untreatable to thinking actually it's one of the most treatable types of anxiety. And a big part of it, it's not the only part, it's complex treatment, but a big part of it is that many people, not all people, but many people who have panic attacks believe that something catastrophic is about to happen very imminently. In many cases, they believe they're going to have a stroke or a heart attack. So people often confuse the physical sensations of panic with the sensations that they think they would have if they're having a heart attack. Because that's why many people having panic attacks call an ambulance. So they go into 
um, accident and emergency um, because they think that they, they think they're dying. And of course, if you think you're having a heart attack, you think you're about to die, um, you're probably going to freak out. Like it's pretty scary, and that's going to cause your anxiety to mount, and then that's going to cause the feelings of tightness, your heart beating rapidly to increase. So it becomes a kind of vicious cycle or a spiral. And that's partly why it peaks so quickly and feels so overwhelming. It's almost anxiety about anxiety. It's fear of the physical sensations of anxiety. Now that's going to create a feedback loop, and you know, very, you know, you're going to fry your brain pretty quickly, like if that's how you think about it. But uh, if you could prove to someone that actually you're not having a heart attack and all you're feeling is like the tightness of the muscles in your chest, your heart's just beating fast because you're scared, but there's nothing else really going on that's particularly dangerous. And if they really believed that, then it would reduce their anxiety. It might not remove it completely, but obviously that's going to be very different now than the guy who believes that he's actually about to drop dead in a minute, like unless he can somehow stop his heart beating so fast. So that's a, a pretty clear example of a situation where believing that something catastrophic is about to happen and there's nothing you can do to cope with it is a recipe for anxiety, and that correcting that false belief, it's, a, it's basically a misconception. So it's, it's just a straight-up factually wrong belief um, that correcting that misconception would uh, help a lot uh, and make, along with other techniques, cure the uh, anxiety disorder. I, I know this is a tough. Uh, you know, I, I've suffered from anxiety a fair amount in my life, and you know, I've heard some people call it fear about fear, which, which I kind of like. But I, I struggle with what's the difference, and I, if this is a, a tough, I think this is a tough question. What's the difference between fear and anxiety? How would you describe the difference between fear and anxiety? Well, first of all, I'd say I don't think there's a definitive answer to that because I think different people maybe use those words in slightly different ways. However, funnily enough, in cognitive therapy, Aaron Beck addresses precisely that question in a book that he wrote uh, called "The Cognitive Therapy and the Emotional Disorders." which was published in 19, late 1960s, I think he published that book. And he answers precisely that question. It's one of the first books on cognitive therapy. So Beck says, and this is semantics, like I say, people might use the words in different ways, um, that fear, the way that most people use that word, implies cognition more. Um and people usually use anxiety to refer more to the affective side of it. Like you, people are usually referring more to the sensations, the feelings, um, when they talk about anxiety. And they're usually talking more about what they're afraid of like, or what they're afraid might happen. Like they're focusing usually a bit more on the content and the thinking when they use the, the word fear. But fear and anxiety are very closely intertwined. Um, now, I would say, you know, someone, I guess if people are really sharp and we wanted to dig into this, we'd say, look, the cognitive model is a bit of an oversimplification because there are certainly situations where you can have feelings of anxiety, arguably, um, where you don't, you're not really thinking that something bad is going to happen. Um, and now, you, once you dig that deep, though, you really get into areas where people might disagree about the terminology. So maybe it becomes a little bit academic. But an easy example would be if someone ran up behind you and yelled boo, then you'd have what we technically refer to as the startle reflex response. So you'd jump out your skin, 
and your heart rate would shoot up and your pupils would dilate like, and your muscles would become tense and your blood pressure would go up and all that kind of good stuff just because someone ran up behind you and popped a balloon or something or like you know yelled boo and you weren't expecting it and that doesn't seem to be anything to do with any beliefs that you have because it completely caught you by surprise right so that's just a reflex response that that arguably is completely mechanical it's completely physiological and you could but then the question would be do you call that anxiety or not like or is it a kind of precursor of anxiety some people might some people might not but what really matters is that the startle reflex will normally go away pretty quickly like it's not normally a big problem right it becomes more of a problem if you then start to worry about it and you impose cognitions on top of it. So Seneca even mentions this. He says, uh, Seneca says, animals that are frightened by a predator. And in this passage in his letters, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, if you redacted his name um, and asked someone to read it, I think they quite feasibly would think it came from a modern book on stress or something like that. So Seneca says wild animals like deer, if they're startled by a predator, freak out. Like they're alarmed, their heart rate shoots up, as we would say today, and they bolt. But then once the threat has gone, before long they calm down and they return to grazing. Um, but humans don't. We keep freaking out. Like, you know, weeks, months later, we'll still be ruminating about that time that we saw that tiger. And then we'll be thinking, what, what if I saw a tiger? Like, and worrying about hypothetical problems. So Seneca says our ability to think about the past and about the future um, is our greatest asset, but also our greatest burden. And it causes us to freak out about things that don't exist anymore or don't exist yet in a way that animals don't experience. And that's true. Like, so this physiological element of anxiety arguably isn't that much of a problem. Like, it's natural, it's healthy, it kind of comes and goes, but it becomes a problem when we keep triggering it uh, inappropriately or when we keep maintaining it in a chronic way. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like chronic stress, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. certainly anxiety would fall under, I believe it would fall under the the kind of the umbrella of probably distress and and that is is not going to be good. So what I'm hearing is this is all about how we think. It's about our interpretation of the things that are happening to us. Would you say that anxiety lives in the future? I don't know if that's a, maybe that is a little simplistic. Um, Because we can can time travel with our mind, we have Mm -hmm. something called imagination. Is that where our anxiety usually lives? Yeah, basically. Um, and again, that's like it's a bit broad. It's a little bit of a simplification, but broadly speaking, anxiety tends to be future focused. It's one of the main characteristics of it. And even the Stoics talk about this; they know this. But the cognitive therapists will often talk about the fact one of the variables is um, called looming vulnerability. That, that's a technical term, uh, research construct. So looming ver- vulnerability is kind of like how uh, rapidly, how imminent and rapidly approaching we think a threat is. So if I think, yeah, something bad is going to happen, but it's not going to happen for ages, and I'll, I'll get plenty of time to prepare for it, then that, that tends not to be as anxiety-provoking. But if I think, oh, my God, it's going to happen right now, like, then I, I'll, I'll tend to, my anxiety will escalate more quickly. If someone's got a spider phobia and they see a spider like moving really slowly, really far away, it will make them less anxious than if they see a spider shooting up their trouser leg really quickly. Like, so the speed of approach of a threat is another 
kind of variable, and that has to do with the future, like how much time um, is involved. So I, there are a number of ways we can analyze anxiety, but typically it's future focused. And and like I say, I mean, I think an important part of it, people don't ask about this that much, but I kind of hinted at it a moment ago, is that that on, in addition to, to the time element and the future focus, there's the appraisal of threat, which is that something really bad is very likely to happen. So if I think there's something going to happen, but it's not that bad, I'm probably not going to feel that anxious. Or if I think it's pretty bad, but it's really unlikely to happen, then I might not feel anxious. So I probably am going to think that it's likely to happen and it's really bad. So high probability, high severity. But also, I have to have a low appraisal of my coping. That seems to be quite fundamental to anxiety. So if I think, man, something really bad is really likely to happen really soon, but I'm a really tough guy and I can handle anything, then I'm probably not going to feel anxious, right? Um, equally, if I think, geez, man, I'm a hopeless mess and I can't cope with anything, but this thing that's about to happen isn't that dangerous anyway, then I might not feel anxious. But if I really want to feel anxious, I'll think something really bad is really likely to happen and I've got no idea how to cope with it, then I'm going to freak out. Well, I think you just you just hit on what this podcast is all about, right? If uh, I think you've been involved with some discussions around mental toughness. I know you've written a book on resilience and this idea that if we can build up that those coping mechanisms, we can deal with these things that are thrown at us a little bit better in life. And and I think that's at the heart of at least what, what I would like to see more people do. So that, that's good stuff right there. I, I think that's going to get clipped out of there as, as a highlight. Um, so, you know, here's the thing, Don. I, I'm fascinated. Again, this book that, that you wrote. So we're looking at, we're talking about modern um, psychotherapy, uh, much of what we're saying so far. And as you said, it, it was really kind of based on these these people these these old philosophers I don't know twenty I think you said twenty three hundred years ago and and what's fascinating to me is twenty three hundred years ago we have these these gentlemen I think they were they were for the most part gentlemen um, and they were coming up with these ideas that we now see through good solid robust research that they were pretty darn I mean they they kind of hit the nail on the head pretty well so I would ask you. I'm fascinated by this. How, why do you think they were so good at, I'll just call it psychology. They were good at human psychology, but they didn't have all of the, the modern science that we have nowadays, but, but they got it right. How do you think they did that? Okay, I've thought about that a lot. And uh, it's a tricky question in some ways, but there's several answers to it. So one of them is, in all honesty, like you have to remember, this is before television, right? I'm being a bit glib, but these guys had more time on their hands to think about things. And so what you tend to find with ancient thinkers is that they go deeper into more fundamental questions. And it's actually quite surprising that today we talk a lot and say very little compared to guys like Socrates. Like, they talked less and said more. Like, they had more time on their hands to contemplate the big questions in life more deeply. We're, we're all over the place like talking about all sorts of trivial stuff most of the time. And, you know, Socrates, this sounds like an odd thing to say, a very simple thing to say. Like if I, I'm kind of used to talking um, 
simplifying philosophy for people. And, and you know, my I learned a lot by teaching my, my little girl about philosophy. I have a daughter who's 10 years old now, but I've been teaching her about philosophy since she was five. And I thought, what's the simplest thing that Socrates says? One of the simplest things that Socrates says is, um, and this is the way you might explain it to a child, that we should talk more about what the word wisdom means. Like Socrates thinks it's really important to discuss how we would define wisdom and also how we would define other ideas like knowledge and justice. Like these are big questions. You know, he's quite candid about this. He says these are the like most important things in life. And you know, we the meaning of life is to to try and understand these things. Well, very simply, today, I don't think you really hear people even use that word much or use the concept much or talk about it. You know, Socrates would look at us and think, those guys aren't talking about wisdom at all. They're talking about everything except wisdom. So why are they forgetting what in his eyes was the most important question in life? So they go deeper into more basic questions. Now, the real puzzle about this is, what are we doing? Like, like how did we end up all over the place? Um, how did we end up so easily distracted from the things which on reflection seem obviously really important? So another one, another way of looking at it would be they talk a lot about death and what it means to come to terms with our own death in a similar way. People don't really talk about that that much these days. Ancient philosophers write about that very extensively. They talk about it a lot. Today, the internet is awash with self-help, self-improvement, like fluff. Um, but a lot of it doesn't address these really basic questions. It kind of skirts around them in ways that ancient philosophy really doesn't. Ancient philosophy goes straight for the jugular and says, you know, have you guys ever thought about the fact that you could drop dead tomorrow? Like, and what does that really mean? Like, you know, they ask those questions. It's, it's, it's refreshing. Now, I would say with psychotherapy, with that in mind, I can't explain exactly why this happened. But something weird happened with Freud. And in all honesty, I, I studied Freud pretty extensively when I was a young guy. I have a master's degree in psychoanalytic theory, by the way. But uh, in my honest take on this is that Freud, cognitive psychotherapy already existed to some extent in the late 19th century. Um, there was a guy called Paul Dubois, who's a, a Swiss psychiatrist, that founded a, a, a precursor of modern cognitive therapy. And it was fairly widespread. It was called rational persuasion psychotherapy. And it was they, they based it on Seneca's writings to some extent. Now, it was eclipsed by Freudian psychoanalysis for over half a century. Why did that happen? Because in retrospect, Freud never did a shred of research. Like he, it's all armchair psychology. He literally made it all up off the top of his head, right? And very little of it, some people get upset when I say this, but very little of what Freud said is of much value today, in, in my eyes anyway. I happily debate that people that disagree. Um, so what happened? Like, How did Freud manage to convince us that anxiety is uh, the repressed castration anxiety, for example? Um, you know, how did he manage to persuade us um, rather than taking a much more down-to-earth physiology, cognitive-based approach to, to these problems. Um, I think in part it was because he talked a lot about specs. If we look at the kind of cultural history of psychoanalysis, I think it's pretty clear 
that Freud became a celebrity because he wrote and gave talks about sexual perversion. And at the time, that was considered sensational, right? So a lot of people knew about Freud, not because they were particularly interested in his theories and stuff, but because they knew that he was talking about fetishism, about homosexuality, um, about things that were kind of taboo in Victorian society to, to, to talk about. And it legitimised conversation. And that was a good thing, in a way. Um, but it led to a kind of celebrity or popularity about Freudian theory that caused it to eclipse, I would say, more rational common sense down to earth and ultimately evidence-based approaches to psychotherapy. So sensational stuff caught people's attention and kind of distract, like a, you know, like a shiny object. Like it, it sort of distracted people from much more basic, you know, sometimes the truth is a bit dull, right? Like you think, geez, is that all the what? Like when you show someone yeah, how the yeah. magic trick was done, why did you get the rabbit out of the hat? Oh, well, you know, it's pretty, once you explain it, it's kind of boring. So when you explain to people how anxiety works and stuff, well, they go, really? It's 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 kind of banal in a way. It's not like repressed castration anxiety and the Oedipus complex and all this kind of weird stuff. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, but that, yeah. that sometimes a false explanation is more tantalizing. It's sexier, like, than sure, a, sure. like a boring, accurate. Uh, and we fell for that. As a culture, like we fell for this kind of, um, it's a kind of sophistry in a way. Like, you know, Freud led us down the garden path with the Oedipus complex, you know. So you have panic attacks, that's because you want to sleep with your mum and you're frightened to admit it. And you like, that's, <laughs> you know, like, now that seems ludicrous. Like, and he yeah, had yeah. zero success treating panic attacks, right? Um, but that, that seems completely ludicrous now. Uh, that we that we can cure panic attacks with like ninety percent uh, reliability. It doesn't have anything to do with that. But he wrote so many books, and so many books and articles were written about it because it sounded um, sounded really interesting. People thought that's interesting. Like, and Victorians seemed to be uh, in the market for stories about incest and kind of fetishism and isn't that, sexual isn't that stuff. Funny? Right. And then it ended up being a complete wild goose chase, as it were, I would say. Yeah, well, gosh. Uh, apart, that... from, apart from in, in Russia, uh, where they thought Freud was uh, a fruitcake and they wouldn't touch his theories with a barge pole. <laughs> and so uh, in Russia, they continued to use rational persuasion psychotherapy. And to a large extent, when cognitive and behavioral therapy re like emerged in America, it was partly because American psychologists were reading Russian uh, Interesting. on mental health. I did not know that. You know, going back to what, what I, what, where, the, where this started, you know, I'm fascinated. Like, again, I'm fascinated by that they got so much right um, a long time ago, and and I I, I agree with you one hundred percent. I think they they just spent more time deep in thought. They reflected on things. Um, they weren't as busy, right? And and we are a society that's distracted and overscheduled and, and frazzled, and we don't want to we don't ever want to be bored. Those right? cat memes won't watch themselves. <laughs> like you know, like do you know how many episodes? Do you know how many episodes of Friends there are? 
Like, you know, in Star Trek. Like, who's going to, someone's got to watch all that stuff. Apparently. Yeah, so that's what we do. And uh, and they would look at us and, and laugh, of course. If Socrates could see modern society, he'd think that we were just like those characters in Plato's cave. Uh, he literally, he th- you know, in Plato's allegory of the cave, the idea is that these people are kind of chained in a cave and they see a shadow play on the wall in front of them, but they never see the real world outside. And it's just like us being glued to, to YouTube. Wow. Like, he would look at that and he would think... Well, it happened. Like you know, you guys are all glued to computer screens. We're, we're watching, and listening we're, to. <laughs> we're watching yeah. the shadows on the wall. That, that's a that's a great uh, that's a great analogy. Um, yeah, it, it's disturbing to me. You know, a lot. I think uh, I've heard that philosophy certainly in, in that time was was really this idea of being being a seeker of wisdom. Uh, to be a philosopher mm-hmm. was was that, and so. I think I feel like we've lost a lot of that in our modern society, and I don't know that that is serving us well. So, if you're listening, maybe spend a little more time in, in deep thought and, and ponder those those big questions in life, and uh, maybe we can figure out some things. Let's uh, let's shift gears here a little bit, Don. Um, you're I think this is your newest book. Uh, you're so busy, I, I, it's hard to keep track. But how to think like a Roman emperor: the Stoic philosophy mm-hmm. of Marcus Aurelius. Um, I read this a, a little while back, and there was one part of it that really stuck stuck out to me. And it was a Hesiod poem, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that right. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and, and let me read this, and if, hopefully I won't butcher it. So for the, the listeners that, that maybe haven't read the book, um, I doubt that you've come across this poem. Um, so this is probably new to you. So let me read this. Wickedness can be had in abundance easily. Smooth is the road, and very nigh she dwells. But in front of virtue, the gods immortal have put sweat. Long and steep is the path to her, and rough at first. But when you reach the top, then at length the road is easy, hard though it was. What is the wisdom in these words? What's your interpretation of this, Don? I'm going to repeat another quote back to you, which I think is related. And it's one of my favorite quotes, actually. It comes from Spinoza's Ethics. And uh, I'm not even going to explain it actually i'll just kind of leave it sitting with people and they can go and have a think about it themselves because it's sort of quote you can show over spinoza said uh, it's one of my i think a beautiful quote he said all excellent things are as difficult as they are rare all excellent things are as difficult as they are rare that's one of my favorite quotations it's kind of related it's not exactly the same it's kind of related to what hesiod is saying here um this is quoted by Socrates in uh, Xenophon's book, Memorabilia Socrates, not in Plato, actually, but in a, another uh, dialogue that we, another set of dialogues that we have by another author about Socrates. And uh, Socrates is telling, uh, giving a speech um, that was actually written by a sophist called Prodicus that he was kind of friends with. And Socrates kind of put his own spin on that speech. We call that speech the choice of Hercules today. That's a name that we give it. And it's basically a type of speech that was called in the ancient world protrectic or an exhortation, we call it, to philosophy or a life of virtue. It's meant to motivate people to... It's a wake-up call, as we would say today. That's what an exhortation is. It's a speech that people would give that's meant to kind of... It's mainly aimed at young men. And it was meant to kind of shake them up. It's sort of motivational, inspirational talk. Um, 
and Socrates kind of prefaces it with, with this quote from Hesiod, which basically says, look, there's something weird about human nature and the something about the way that our brain is wired predisposes us to look for the easy option in life. Of course, nobody wants trouble. Um, you know, everybody always wants to kind of like take shortcut, like the easy path in life. Um, but if you want to really flourish, if you want resilience, if you want wisdom, sometimes you have to voluntarily go down the road less traveled, as it were. Sometimes you have to voluntarily embrace hardship. Like, if you, a good example would be, you know, it's easier just to lie in bed all day and watch TV and eat Cheetos or whatever, right? But if you wanted to be fit and healthy, you kind of have to go outside and walk up and down hills or go to the gym or play sports or something like that. And that requires sweat, it requires effort, it requires discipline and endurance and dedication. Like, but ultimately, it's better for us. And the same is true of our intellectual life. You know, it's easy just to sit and watch YouTube videos like, and kind of passively soak up, um, you know, the modern equivalent of Sigmund Freud, you know, like sophistry and garbage and just random flim-flam and nonsense off the internet. Like this ocean of self-help that doesn't actually help anybody. Like, they, it's easy just to kind of sit like a big sponge and just passively soak that up. But, you know, here's the rub. If you want self-improvement, you have to actually do stuff. Like, it's an activity. Like, you've got to kind of, like, get off your backside. And sometimes, you know, if you really want to change, you have to challenge yourself. Like, you're going to have to dispute some of your own beliefs. You're going to have to be tough on yourself sometimes. You're going to have to change your mind about stuff like shock horror, you're going to have to admit that you were wrong about certain things if you ever want to kind of get out of your comfort zone and grow as an individual. And so Hesiod the same, you know, if you follow the easy path, you'll never really flourish. Like, you won't grow. And in fact, if anything, you, you know, you'll just be moving backwards. Like, there's a path of decay. Like, but although it goes against our instincts in some ways to do things that are painful or tiring, emotionally or physically you know it's obvious in a sense it's easy to look at other people and think that guy needs to get off his backside it's harder when we look at ourselves and think geez maybe i need to get off my backside and go out there and do challenging things like and admit that i'm wrong sometimes if i want to become a stronger healthier and happier person maybe that's maybe that's what life is actually all about like maybe if you sit on your backside and do nothing like, and just kind of eat Cheetos and watch, you know, like the modern equivalent of Freud on the internet, like, which, you know, I won't name any names apart from, you know, obviously Jordan Peterson is a good example, but like, you know, Joe Rogan. <laughs> you mentioned like a name. Like, but if you're just kind of like soaking up all that garbage off the internet, then, you know, your brain will rot and you have to think for yourself. Like, you know, if you want to flourish as a human being and grow, that's what Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living, right? It's a wake-up call that he was trying to give us to say, you have to think critically and you have to learn to see through some of the strategies that, you know, you're, we are subject to brainwashing day in, day out. I thought the sophists were all dead, you know, the uh, uh, 4th century, 5th century BC quasi-philosophers that Socrates talks about. These guys that used rhetoric to, they were orators that tried to manipulate audiences. 
Like, I thought they were all dead. And then I realized, you know, Facebook is a sophist. YouTube is a sophist. Twitter is a sophist. What we get from the, the these social media is a great, great thing, but we pay a heavy price for it. And that clearly people end up, first of all, in a bubble where they just see more and more stuff that's fed to them that agrees with their existing viewpoints. I learned this when I looked at my friend's YouTube accounts, borrowed their YouTube account and saw all the stuff that was in their feed. <laughs> like, so it's all either kind of crazy left-wing political stuff or crazy right-wing political, depending on what they're into. And that's all they see. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like a, a weird feedback loop. Like, it's, all, it's really obvious. Go borrow someone who doesn't agree with your political views, YouTube account, and look at the videos that they're seeing. Like, it just gives them more of the same, right? It's crazy. Uh, that was scary. Like an echo chamber. It is, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, what Hesiod is saying is that, you know, sometimes we need to admit that we're wrong. We need to go out and face tough challenges in life. Um, and that's the meaning of life. When you're lying on your deathbed and you look back on it, Nobody's going to think as the, the Grim Reaper hovers above you, geez, I wish I'd spent more time watching cat videos or I wish I'd watched more episodes of Star Trek <laughs> or, you know, just before your, your light snuffed out. Like, when you look back in your life, all that stuff just kind of blurs into nothingness. You know, what you remember is the fact that you grew, like the fact that you overcame challenges. That's the stuff that life is actually made up of. Uh, and that's what Hesiod is encouraging uh, his readers, his listeners to, oh, to understand. And that's why I love that poem. That's it. That's it right there. You know, we like to use the the phrase "do hard things" uh, uh, here on the on the on the podcast. And and you know, the one thing that stands out to me, you know, I I love all of what you said. I don't think there's anything I would disagree with, except for the Star Trek uh, thing. Uh, I don't know if I agree with you there, Don. But nice Star Trek. <laughs> I like Star Trek. I, so, but this this idea—I mean, the, the last part of it—you um, know, here's the thing. I, I I talk about this, and I coach people on on again being mentally tough and resilient. And sometimes I'll get pushback and say, "Wait a minute, Ron. I have three kids, and I'm working from home, and um, I'm doing everything I can just to keep my head above water. I don't want to do anything hard right now. I don't want to work on myself right now." And I get that. I have empathy for that. Uh, I think there are times in life when it, you just don't have the capacity for that. But I would also say the, the last line in Hesiod's poem, he says, but when you reach the top, then at length the road is easy, hard though yeah. it was. So I think this idea that if we do yeah. the work, our life actually, in, in a paradoxical way, will become easier because we've, we've strengthened ourselves. We've strengthened that resilience and that mental toughness so that when the yeah. things come at us in, in life... They don't disrupt us as easy. I mean, that's the way I read that, and that's why I love it so much. It's easier when you look at other people. You know, I think it's obvious. And the Greek, again, this is this is such a, a major theme in Greek philosophy. It's because it, it, these guys didn't have television, and they just sat around, and it seemed pretty darn obvious to them that most people are the authors of most of their own suffering. Like, you know, that, that, that seemed like a truism to, to Greek philosophers. They thought, clearly, if you look around you, and they like to look at the Greek tragedies, right? The Greek tragedies are, are as the name implies, pretty tragic. Like, but Socrates thought it was a bit of a joke because he said, you know, like the characters in the Greek tragedies are mainly just screwing up their own lives. 
Like, so Oedipus goes crazy because he's found out he's accidentally, let's pick on Oedipus, but he, uh, he, he sleeps with his own mother without realising because um, he's abandoned as a child, so he doesn't know that it's his mother. And then he finds out and goes crazy. Why? But the Stoic said, but like he doesn't have to go crazy. I mean, he like the only reason that this ends up as a tragedy is because he freaks out about it, makes a big deal about it. I mean, someone else in another universe might have went, "Oh my God, that's shocking!" But you know, I had no idea what I was doing, so you know, I'm not going to like tear my hair out over it. But it's Oedipus's reaction to it that's the tragedy. Like you know, and it's the same with most of the characters in the Greek tragedies. They're the authors of the they're drama queens. You know, they're hysterical. They're the authors of their, their own downfall and their own tragedy, usually. And, and that, that's often true of life in general. We make life much harder for ourselves in many cases than it needs to be. So in, in psychotherapy, clients will often say they don't have the time to do therapy techniques at home or whatever, right? But I'll say to them, well, like, how, many, how much time do you spend each day worrying about stuff? And they'll go, well, hours, like... So surely you're spending far more time and energy harming yourself than it would take to stop harming yourself. And then actually some of the work that you need to do, funnily enough, is uh, negative. Like it just consists in stopping doing certain things. Doesn't, and that takes literally less than zero time. Like, you know, like just know. stopping doing stuff like, is often the first stage in in cognitive therapy. But people will usually use I don't have time as one of the most common, it's almost like a reflex, I haven't got time, as a kind of excuse for doing stuff. And yet they spend a hell of a lot of time actively sabotaging themselves hours every day or, you know, or distracting themselves from meaningful goals in life. So we just got to see through that. It's a confidence trick that we play on ourselves um, to say that we don't have the time and energy. We'd have a lot more energy if we weren't um, worrying or ruminating about negative stuff. Like, yeah. So I, I just think we've got to do a better job of selling that to people and getting them to, to realise it's, it's ultimately uh, in their interest. I, I want to actually just interject, to go back to something we said earlier, because I feel, I think this is important. We talked about, about anxiety, and we talked about that passage in Hesiod. Um, I... I think one of the, and I also talked about how a lot of psychotherapy is common sense. And I think people are kind of distracted from basic truths. Now, I'm almost tired of saying this because in many, this, this is a truth so basic that many psychotherapists actually do become a little bit jaded kind of repeating it and doing it with their clients. But I think it's important, um, partly for that reason. We know a great deal about how anxiety works. And one of the biggest lies about anxiety is that people don't understand that the physical sensations of anxiety tend to abate naturally through repeated prolonged exposure to the thing that triggers them. So in other words, if you're frightened of cats and you go in a room that's full of cats, your heart rate will double within a few seconds. It'll shoot up. You'll have a, an acute anxiety response if you've got a cat phobia. And you see a bunch of cats. What happens next, though, is interesting. So you'll have a strong urge to leave the room. Like in Hesiod's example, it would be easier for the easiest thing for you is just to turn around and walk out the door. Right? And then uh, you'll avoid the hard work. You'll avoid the discomfort and the anxiety. 
And so everyone's strongest reflex is avoidance. Avoidance is the number one. Did you know avoidance is the number one most popular coping strategy in the whole world? Hmm. I didn't know. In, that. in history, like avoidance is everyone's favorite coping strategy. It's the easiest, uh, and, and it takes a multitude of forms. But if you do the opposite and exhibit what's something called approach behavior, so you stay in the room with the cats, gradually your heart rate will come down. It's going to feel horrible, like for 5, 10, 15 minutes or whatever. But gradually your anxiety will wear off. That's what normally happens. And if you do that every day for, you know, three or four days or whatever, um, for long enough, uh, it'll wear off permanently because that's how anxiety works. Basically, that's how it works at the a reflex level, a kind of physiological level. That's one of the most robustly established findings in the entire field of psychotherapy research. We've known it for over half a century. And it's taken for granted by most researchers today. It's called the emotional habituation response. So I, it's kind of a, a little bit of, not even theory, but it's just an empirical fact. But I wanted to explain that because I think it's one of the most basic and important things for most people to realize about anxiety because mo- we, we have such a strong urge now what happens one form of avoidance is by uh, thinking about things in abstract ways we also avoid confronting them um, so someone who has a cat phobia might uh, complain a lot and talk a lot to their friends about how they're scared of cats and that becomes a way of avoiding just being in a room with cats until the anxiety wears off or they might kind of sit and theorize and speculate about it and try and understand how the anxiety originated. Um, so overthinking things sometimes can become a, a way of intellectualizing, rationalizing, and avoiding confronting mm. our fears. Um, this is endemic today. Um, you know, uh, it's, we're all talking no action, right? But if you want to overcome anxiety, the one thing we know absolutely for certain is that prolonged repeated exposure to the things that make you feel anxious, broadly speaking, is the most reliable way of, of dealing with it. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm familiar, I assume you are as well, you know, stress inoculation training, you know, so this mm-hmm. idea of stressing yourself until it becomes more, more, um, I don't know, comfortable. But, but I think what you're saying, it's even worse, right? Uh, let's, let's be clear about this. When you take, and I love the fact that we're, we're, taking this right back to Hesiod's poem, but when you take the easy path, you have that anxiety about whatever it is that's bothering you, you take the easy path and you avoid it, then you're making it stronger, right? You, so you're, you maintain you're creating your anxiety. These, yeah, so you're making this, this anxiety even stronger every time you walk away from it instead of facing it. And, and so... It, it doesn't get better, and in some cases, you'll actually make it worse by doing that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, this is fun stuff. I could continue going forever, but I want to be—I uh, want to be respectful of your time. And so, let's start to wrap this up. And and let me start with this, Don. It took me a little while to get you on the podcast. I know you're busy. You're you're out there doing a lot of things. I've seen you—you you know, kind of bounce around doing some talks and and whatnot on the internet. Um, what do you have going on, and how can people work with you? What what's exciting right now for you? Well, we uh, we started recently a nonprofit. Uh, called the Plato's Academy Centre in Athens, in Greece. And our our goal was, and is, to try and bring philosophy back to the original location of Plato's Academy um, by building an international conference centre there where people can attend events. 
So it's a pretty ambitious goal. Like, but we've got a board of advisors with some top authors and academics on it. We're promoting a virtual conference at the moment. It's happening at the end of May. And we, you know, we've got a plan of action together and we've got a, a lot of influential stakeholders involved. So we're well underway now to, to working on this project. And people want to find out about that. The website is just platosacademy.org. And also if they want to find any of my stuff, like courses and social media and all that, and books and things, they can find my website is just donaldrobertson.name. And uh, the books that I'm working on at the moment, I just finished a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius mm. called Verissimus that's coming out in June. And I'm just putting the finishing touches to an, a history, a biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press's Ancient Life series, which will come out maybe towards the end of this year, start of next year. So those are the kind of things that I've been working on at the moment people could check out. But the Plato's Academy project, I really is the thing I'm interested in and really promoting because it's a philanthropic, non-profit project. You know, we just want to get people doing the Socratic method. We want to get them f- appreciating uh, Greek philosophy and culture more. Like, and also, you know, part of the project is to bring foreign revenue and investment from all around the world into this relatively deprived suburb or a neglected part of Athens, which, you know, we think would benefit a lot from a little bit of, you know, love and attention uh, and being being restored. So we're hoping that it's a win-win for everybody. Like we can get people to learn about Greek philosophy and come there, uh, and also the the local community can benefit. Um, because at the moment, the only people that go there are local Greeks to walk their dogs, and you would think that Plato's Academy had disappeared from history, but the the ruins um, of the some of the buildings are still there. It's a thirty-eight car park in the middle of Athens that people can go and visit and they can walk in the footsteps of Plato and Socrates. Wow. Well, consider me a fan. I'm hoping that that does get up and running because that would be a great thing for me to go visit at some point um, in the future. Let's go to, and by the way, I'll have all of those, as always, uh, all of those will be in the show notes, uh, links that you can find uh, all the stuff that Donald just talked about. So let's go to the last question, Don. I, I know this is always a tough one, um, but what is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? Well, first thing I'll answer that question a little bit of a tangent by saying, I think there are two types of people in this world. Um, and uh, there are people that learn from experience and people that don't, it seems to me. I think once you hit 40, roughly speaking, like if you've got any sense, you should sit down and review your life and think about how it's gone so far. And there are many things that you can learn from that. Like you can ask yourself simple questions. Like of all the times that you lent money to people over the years, what percentage of them gave you it back and things like that, right? Stuff like that. But uh, there's a lot of things you can learn just from your own experience. You don't really learn that easily from books and from other people. Some people just don't reflect on their lives uh, in that way. But one of the meta overarching things that I think you learn is that many of the things that seem like failures or setbacks in life, in retrospect, 
you'll often realize that actually they were opportunities or they led on to opportunities in life. Some of the worst things that happened to you, looking back, are possibly some of the best things that happened to you from another perspective. And easy examples are like everyone thinks that when a relationship ends, when your girlfriend dumps you or your wife divorces you, like that's a catastrophe, right? But then that had to happen for you to go on and meet the next person in your life. So very few people think that the breakup of the first relationship, looking back decades later, is catastrophic, although it might have seemed like it at the time. Um, one thing has to end for another thing to begin. Uh, often for many people, losing their job is the best thing that can happen to them. It doesn't seem like it at the time, but then maybe they go on to become self-employed or they find a better job or you know, in many cases, your life will actually improve as a result of things that seem like setbacks at the time. So that's why I find it, in a sense, I find it difficult because I look back and think many of these things that seemed like failures were actually turned out to be good for me. And I try and kind of be grateful for that and appreciate it. Um, one of the things I, 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 the book that you held up earlier, when I was a young guy, I really, I studied philosophy at university. And I graduated top of my year. I did surprisingly well. I dropped out of school. Um, and uh, I, I was kind of on the uh, rubbish tip. I didn't think my life was going anywhere. And I kind of stumbled into university. You know, again, I wouldn't probably wouldn't have wound up at university doing philosophy if I hadn't dropped out of school. And uh, I did really well at university. And then I applied to do my PhD, and I think everybody thought I was kind of shoo-in to be a philosophy lecturer or something like that. Um, And my PhD proposal got turned down, which came as a big shock to me, because uh, I did so well at at university. Um, And I kept applying to do PhDs. My proposals kept getting turned down. Um, And I think it was in part because I wanted to focus on psychotherapy and stoicism, and it was a bit of a niche area. So that was a big failure like it was a seemed like a shock to me I thought like you know I was I was bound to go and have a career in academia and it 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 failed um but then because of that I went off and I I wrote the book that you held up earlier um because I thought well you know if I can't do a PhD thesis at a university you know maybe I can just write a book and submit it to a publisher and then the, the next thing was that book was meant to be aimed at an audience of psychotherapists and academic philosophers and they but they didn't read it like they weren't remotely interested um it seems like a setback seems like a failure but the weird thing was it reached an audience of people as a kind of self-help book and then it led on to me writing other books how to thank a roman emperor is translated into 18 languages now and it, it, it sold hundreds of thousands of copies around the world like so if it hadn't have been in a way because of my failure to reach an academic audience, you know, maybe I wouldn't have gone on to become a self-help author. So I would say, like, you know, my biggest failure in life was not getting my PhD, but, you know, it worked out probably for the best for me in in the long run. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.